never actually let it go that long. You know, so we'll see. Uh, let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, we're just going to read a, a short passage. John 1, verses 10 through 13. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." Lord Jesus Christ, such precious and powerful words, and in them is life. We pray, Father, that the light would go forth and bring life. We pray for any in this room, any within the sound of my voice who are not yet alive, who perhaps even think that they are, but are not. We pray, Father, that you would come in and give them the new birth. For those of us that have already experienced it, we pray, King Jesus, that you would remind us of the thrill and the goodness of these things. And we pray that we would bear this message in our own hearts and be grateful to you, and that we would tell our friends and our neighbors who dwell in darkness, oh, here is light, and here is life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, we've been uh, studying this Advent season, the prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses of the gospel of John. And Advent, of course, is a season which is bounded by the four Sundays before Christmas and which ends on Christmas Day. And it's a season in which the church symbolically reenacts the period in history when God's covenant people were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a deliverer. God had last spoken to his people through the prophet Malachi. If you look in your Old Testament, the last book is the prophet Malachi, his book. And that book was uh, written, Malachi prophesied, in about 445 B.C. And then God went silent. And the book of Malachi, it ends with a promise from God. God promises to send Elijah back to his people before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then, nothing. And he sent no prophet to them for almost 450 years. Israel had never gone that long without a prophet to speak the word of God to them. This was longer even than the silence that marked their captivity in Egypt. And so it was a time of silence, and it was also a time of darkness. And it was a time of immense suffering for these people. Israel in this period was right on the border of two regional empires. If you know anything about history, you know that Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world in that day. He went, he started with Greece and he went all the way down to Egypt and he conquered the whole Middle East and then up through Turkey and he made it all the way to India and he conquered 
parts of, east, of Western India, and then everybody was like, enough, Alexander, let's go home. And so they did, they, they went home. And everywhere Alexander went, he, he enforced the Greek language and the Greek culture. And he would take the local gods and he would let them keep the worship of their local gods, but you had to change it to the name of a Greek god or a Greek goddess. Well, Alexander died. And Alexander's generals, he had four generals that were very close to him. They were his companions, they were his friends. And they decided, hey, this thing is too big for one person to control. And so they, they broke up that empire into four pieces. And, and when, he, when, when it was broken up, one of his generals, a guy named Ptolemy, took Egypt. He said, I'm going to run Egypt. And he built the city of Alexandria in Egypt, and that's where he ruled from. There was another one named Seleucius, and he took the region which today encompasses Syria and southern Turkey and Iraq and Iran and even parts of Afghanistan and Turkmenistan. If you want to look at your map on Google Earth, it's kind of amazing how much territory he had. And what was left of the Jewish nation after their return from captivity in Babylon it was just a very small rump state from what it had been before in its glory. And it was just Judea at that point. It was basically the southern kingdom was all that was left. But it was in a terrible spot because it was strategically vital. It was right on the border of the empire of the Ptolemies and the empire of the Seleucids. And it was fought over constantly. Initially, it was ruled by Ptolemy in Egypt, and that worked out pretty well. Alexander had actually granted the Jews uh, a, an exception, and he didn't make them take the Greek gods and goddesses and all those other things. They, they had to learn Greek, and they did, but the, they, he left their religion alone. And there's an amazing story there in the providence of God that someday maybe I'll tell you. But uh, so Ptolemy followed that, that, that policy, and he let the Jews alone. But then and one of Seleucius's descendants, a guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, decided he was going to take that land. And he did. He conquered it. And he came in and he said, no, you're all going to be Greek now. And, and the Jews were like, no, no, we're not. And yes, you are. And he, he conquered the area and he killed a bunch of people. And then he walked into the Holy of Holies and he set up a statue of Zeus and he slaughtered a pig on the altar as a sacrifice to Zeus, right there in the temple of God. Now, this is much more complex than I'm telling you right now. I'm having to, to simplify it. But uh, he, he did that, and then there was no worship of God in his own temple for three and a half years. And of course, just like if China came in and invaded America and said, we're going to turn you into something else, there were people who resisted. There were people who went along with it. And there were people who resisted. And one guy who resisted, his family resisted, started a guerrilla war. And it was led by a family known as the Maccabees. And this war lasted for three years. And when the Maccabees finally prevailed, and when they ran the Seleucids out, they cleansed the temple, and they rededicated it to God, and they lit the lampstand in the temple, which was supposed to stay lit all the time, they relit it. And so for the first time in three and a half years, the lamp of the Lord burned in the temple. Now, the, the retreating Seleucids 
had intentionally desecrated the oil used in the temple, and there was only enough oil to burn for one day. And that oil supply miraculously lasted not for one day, but for eight. And that is where the Jewish festival of Hanukkah comes from. There was a miracle that God did in just sustaining the, the lamp of the Lord before his altar and before his throne for eight nights and eight days. But Jewish independence under the Maccabees didn't last very long. And before long, the Romans stepped in to the power vacuum left by the disintegration of the Seleucid Empire. And then the Romans decided that they wanted to control Egypt too because it was the breadbasket of the Mediterranean and they had a growing population to feed. So tiny Judea, which they renamed Palestine, was rolled over once again. And occupying armies of foreigners came in and they inevitably trampled on the worship of the Jews. And they used promises of wealth and power to certain parties within Jewish society or factions to facilitate divisiveness and strife amongst the Jews. It suited them for the Jews to be fighting with each other so they wouldn't unify and fight against Rome. And so you have these parties that grow up that you read about in the New Testament. You had the, the Sadducees, which were, they were, the, they were kind of the left-wing coastal urban liberals of our day. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. We don't need to worry about the resurrection. We don't need to worry about all these other things. We believe that, that uh, the first five books of the Bible are okay and then nothing else. And, it, you know, we're fine. We're fine to have all this cooperation with the Romans. And then there were the Pharisees who were like, oh, no, never, 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 never. And then there were people who were like what we call freedom fighters today or guerrilla warriors or people like the underground in France during World War II. And they were, they were called the zealots and the Sicarii, and they'd go around assassinating people. Barabbas was one of those. And so you had all these parties fighting with each other, and, and Israel in this weakened state, and the people of God suffering. And empires rose and fell all around them over and over again, and everybody wanted this little piece of real estate that the Jews were occupying. And so when you read of someone like Simeon, in Luke 2, who's old, 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 and he loves God, and he's longing for the consolation of Israel. That's what the scripture said. He was longing for the consolation of Israel. Think about that word consolation. When you console someone, you console them who's in, because they're in pain, because they've endured a bitter loss. And then one day this woman walks into the temple with a newborn baby and the Holy Spirit says to Simeon, there he is. There is the consolation of Israel, Simeon. And Simeon walks over to this young woman and he takes the child in his arms and he says, now, O Lord, let your servant depart this life in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. As Jesus is the true light. He's the light that lightens every man and in him is life. And then, says John 1, there was another man. A man sent from God named John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. And when John comes, he is the very picture of an Old Testament prophet 
in all of its weirdness. If you ever read the Old Testament prophets, you will find some very, very strange stuff, particularly like in the book of Ezekiel. They used to, the, the rabbis wouldn't let anybody under the age of 30 read Ezekiel because they were afraid it would drive them crazy. And it's just a weird book. And, and God does things that are quite weird sometimes. This, this John the Baptist, he, he lives in the desert away from everybody. His clothes are woven out of camel's hair. And he has a belt of leather around his waist. Now let me show you something. Get your Bible out and turn to the book of 2 Kings and chapter 1. And verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. Now you remember Malachi said God's going to send Elijah. And then here comes this guy. He's wearing a camel hair shirt and a leather belt. And what is that supposed to remind us of? Well, if we know our Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So God says to Malachi, he's going to send you John the Baptist before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Then this guy pops up, and he's dressed like Elijah. He eats the food of the poor. He eats locusts and wild honey. He scavenges what he can find in the desert. He, he lives in caves. He doesn't get married and have a family. He doesn't have a day job. He doesn't dwell in the city or the town, but in this thinly populated desert area around the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea. But he's not just some weird hermit who eats bugs. He's also a preacher. And what is his message according to the Bible? His message is, repent, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. The root is laid bare and the axe is at the root and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and will be thrown in the fire. Now he's not really talking about trees there. He's talking about people. He says, repent and be baptized and show forth your repentance by your deeds. He says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming right behind me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes and carry them. And he's coming, and he's coming with a winnowing fork in his hand, and he's going to thresh the people. And he's going to clear the threshing floor, and he'll gather that wheat into his barn, and he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Once again, he's not talking about plant life. He's talking about people. And John the Baptist, who looks just like Elijah, says, get ready, he's almost here. Now in our day, if you hire a church consultant to help you build a successful church, he will tell you that you need a good location. It's like they say in real estate, location, location, location. Location is everything. So you need a good location. And they say, once you got the good location, he'll tell you, you need to be culturally relevant. You need to look like your target audience. You need to dress like them. You need to speak like them. And then you need to have programs that appeal to them and address their felt needs. And boy, don't say anything that might offend them or upset them. Instead, make them laugh. 
Make them feel better when they leave church than they feel when they come in. And if you do those things, say the church consultants, you will build a successful church, by which they mean a church with a big building and lots of people coming through the doors and a budget that's sufficient to support a large staff of professionals while still paying the lead pastor enough to afford a BMW. Now, whether anyone actually hears the gospel or gets saved or matures in the Lord is another question. No consultant would ever recommend John the Baptist's model. He's a weird guy in very unfashionable and uncomfortable clothes. He goes as far from the bright lights and the big city as he possibly can, and he starts screaming in the desert at the top of his voice, yelling about the impending judgment of God and the fires of hell that await a man or a woman who doesn't repent and get baptized and prove their repentance. Isn't it a sham how they live after that? In our day, people who come to church and then leave and are not changed, that's what John the Baptist said you can't do. Prove your repentance isn't a sham by how you live after that. Now that's not seeker sensitive at all. That's not a recipe for success, right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna dress as weird as I can, I'm gonna stand as far away from everybody as I can, I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs about the impending judgment of God and demand that you repent. Who in the world would sign up for a church like that? How did it, how did it go? Well, the Bible says, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem was going to him and were being baptized in the Jordan and were confessing their sin. The response was enormous. You see, man's techniques will produce man's results, but God's techniques produce God's results. And they're two totally different things. Well, one day John is baptizing, and he looks up, and he sees Jesus. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now think about this for a minute. 450 years earlier, the people were told by the prophet Malachi to look for Elijah as a mark that the day of the Lord had come. And they're longing for that day because of their suffering and because of their oppression. And his birth is heralded by a star. And wise men from the east show up at, at Herod's doorstep looking for the king of the Jews. And everyone in Jerusalem is scared out of their wits, wondering what Herod's going to do because it's not going to be good. And then 30 years later, a man shows up who looks like Elijah, sounds like Elijah, lives like Elijah, smells like Elijah. And his message is that everyone needs to get ready for the one to come by repenting and being baptized. And then one day this man says, he's here. He's right here. Right there he is, the Lamb of God. See him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And three years later, John is dead by beheading. And the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is crucified. One of his own followers has betrayed him. The people were screaming for his blood and saying that they had no king but Caesar. 
And the great movement that some had hoped to build around Jesus was dead in the water, and his few remaining disciples were in hiding. What in the world happened? Now, if you were writing Jesus' performance review, you might be tempted to say that Jesus took a perfect slow-pitch setup and somehow managed to strike out. You'd be tempted to say he failed. You'd be tempted to say the light tried to shine in the darkness, and the darkness seems to have swallowed the light. His own people rejected him, and still do today, by and large. What happened? Well, John 1 tells us. John 1 says, he was in the world that he made, but that world did not know him. That's odd, isn't it? Then he says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. The, the Greek literally reads, he came to his own things, but his own ones did not receive him. Coming to his own things is another way of saying he came home. He came to his home. He came to the place where he kept his stuff. And the people there, the servants of the household, shut the doors and barred the gate against him. It's what God said in Isaiah chapter 1. Hear me, you heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master. The donkey knows the owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Let me show you something else. Turn to to Luke chapter 20. And once you have eyes to see that you find this theme all over the New Testament, in Luke chapter 20, and verse 9, beginning in verse 9. Now, to set the stage, people had just been asking that Jesus, one of these factions, members of it, had just been asking that Jesus prove his identity and tell them what authority he did the things that he did under. And Jesus responds and and tells them a parable. Luke chapter 20 and verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. They also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders have rejected 
has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere so that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And they want to kill him. They want to kill him. You see, the light that came into the world is not only an unrecognized light, it's also an unwelcome light. You see, the problem isn't that Jesus did such a poor job of explaining himself that the people he spoke to could be excused for not catching on. The problem wasn't even that they had wrong expectations of what the Messiah was to do and be, though they certainly did have those. By the time we get to John 6, we find that there are such great crowds following him that he can hardly do anything or get a moment's peace, and we find that those crowds are plotting to seize him and make him king by force. They recognized something in him. They recognized an authority and a capacity to rule. So what was the problem? The problem was fundamentally that they wanted a God to serve them. They wanted a God to do what they wanted him to do, and they had no patience for a God who said, no, you've got it backwards. You serve me. I call the shots. You do what I want you to do. The creature wanted the creator to serve the creature on the creature's terms. A few pounds of animated dust demanded that God bow down to it rather than it bowing down to God. But that rejection, though it was widespread, was not universal, was it? Because once again, we go back to John 1. The world didn't know him. He came to his own. His own received him not. But then what's the next line say? But to all that did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that interesting once again? We're obsessed with rights in our day. We manufacture new ones out of thin air on a regular basis and enshrine them in law or enshrine them in culture and custom. And we bind other people with our rights because the flip side of every right is that it's someone else's duty. It's someone else's responsibility. If I have a right not to be offended by your speech, then you have a duty under the law not to offend me with your speech. This is the only place right here in this passage, the only place in Scripture where the creature is described as having any right relative to the creator. As a matter of fact, the scripture everywhere else speaks when it uses this word of God's rights over the creature. So we have a right here, but it's a conditional right, isn't it? If you receive the son, if you believe on his name, you are granted a right before God, which he must not, which indeed he cannot refuse. If you meet these conditions, you literally have God over a barrel. 
He can't do anything other than what is demanded of him in this case. You have the right to become a child of God. People like to say that all human beings are God's children, and God is everyone's father. But you can see clearly here that that is not so. That is not so. You only have the right to become God's child after receiving Jesus and believing on his name. And only then are you adopted into the family of God. You are, as it were, born a second time into a new family. And that family is not of blood. That is, it's not of any particular nation. It's not of any particular race as it once was. It was Jewish blood, and that was the only blood you could have. It's not of any particular nation of race. It's not of the flesh or of the will of man, which is how our parents stamped us with their image and likeness, isn't it? They, we were born of blood. We were born of them, and so we resemble them. I, you know, I, I don't know how to, I, my feet, and I actually found out from the doctor, it's not my feet, it's my hips, but my feet are stuck on this way. And when I walk, I walk like a duck or a penguin, you know? I just do. I can't help it. And, and it's so funny. When I, I remember when my mom moved to Sturgis, and, and there was a little bit of snow on the sidewalk, and I walked on the sidewalk, and then she walked on the sidewalk, and it's two little duck feet, you know, because she's exactly the same way. I'm just like her. She stamped me with her ducky image, and I can't get away from it. That's also how they, they passed down to us the legacy of sin and death and corruption, which they inherited from Adam. That all comes from the flesh. That all comes through the flesh. And God says, no, this kind of birth is a new kind of birth. The normal means of generation are not involved in this kind of birth. You're born into this family. It's a different kind of thing. The only person that's involved is God. We're born of God. We're born in his image and likeness, which our father Adam had uh, had before he marred it through the fall. And, and so then we're born into this. And what happens when you're born into the family of God? you start to take on God's likeness, God's image. You become like your heavenly father, not your earthly parents. So you enter into this family, and by the Holy Spirit, you're born into this family, into newness of life, and you're stamped with a different image than the one your folks stamped you with. And you've got rights. You've got the right to be a child of God. You've got the right to all that entails, to heaven, to riches, to glory that goes on forever and ever. You've got rights. I, I came across an illustration this week when I was reading Jim Boyce's commentary on this passage, and he told the story of uh, Napoleon, the emperor. And Napoleon was in the middle of a, a military campaign. He was seated on his horse, and he dropped the reins of his horse in order to read the papers that he had to read to keep up on what was going on. And when he did so, the horse reared up and almost unseated Napoleon the emperor, which is a very dangerous thing. 
And this young corporal from the Grenadiers, a very lowly soldier, he saw what was happening and he sprung forward and he grabbed the bridle and he takes hold of the bridle of the emperor's horse and and in a matter of seconds he brings this animal under control. And Napoleon turns to the corporal and he says, thank you, captain. And the lowly soldier looked at him and said, captain? Yeah, thank you, captain. Of what company, sire? Of my guards, my personal guards, answered Napoleon. And in that instant, the man walked across the field to the headquarters of the general staff, and he tore off his corporal's stripes. And as he did so, he entered the headquarters, and he took his place among the emperor's officers. And someone came, and they said, what are you doing? And he replied, I'm a captain of the guards. By whose authority do you think you're a captain of the guards? And the man said, by the authority of the emperor, I have a right to be here. The gospel offer goes out. It's a universal offer to all human beings everywhere. Would you like to be born into the family of God? Would you like to inherit the earth? Would you like to live forever? Would you like to be called the child? of a rich and powerful emperor. Well then stop telling God what he needs to do in order to be in your good graces and humble yourself and receive Jesus and believe on his name and you will receive the right to become a child of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our closing song, it came upon 